Nicole Hemsoth, co-founder and co-editor, and your host for today's episode, which will focus on understanding quantum computing through a rather interesting analogy. Our guest today is Matt Regor, a quantum engineer at Regetti Computing. That's one of only a few quantum computing startups today, and that's something we talked about in a recent article that we'll link to in the text for today's show. Matt leads a team on the quantum R&D hardware side that's building their next-generation GPUs. In addition to other work he's done before coming to Rigetti, he was the inventor of a record-holding quantum memory architecture that he helped develop at Yale. So hi, Matt. How are you? Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I think that's kind of a good starting point. Uh, before we dive into the work you do at Rigetti, tell us about the memory architecture you helped develop and maybe how that got you thinking about uh, new ways of... of uh, carrying out quantum architecture. Yeah, um, thanks. I think it's, a, it's actually a great, uh, great launching point. Um, so you can think about uh, quantum computing um, uh, from a kind of bottoms-up perspective, which is as kind of an engineer uh, where I sit most of the time. Um, a lot of the the challenges uh, can be can be seen through, like, um, what are people actually? What, what are the problems that people are actually trying to solve? Um, and so, uh, in my thesis, uh, the, this quantum memory problem is uh, substantially challenging in, the, in these solid-state devices. Um, uh, essentially, the, the problem is you can uh, create quantum states, uh, but how long can you, can you store them? And it, it's really fundamental to the solid-state uh, approach to quantum computing. Um, in particular, uh, because uh, these systems are uh, really efficient at uh, sh- achieving strong coupling to things. Um, it's also their advantage. So you can uh, engineer and, and, and kind of control these things uh, pretty well because of their um, ability to strongly couple to, to signals to each other. But it's also their, their kind of Achilles heel, where uh, they like coupling to things so much, they also uh, tend to uh, really strongly couple to the environment. And that's an opportunity to essentially lose the quantum information that you'd otherwise store in these systems. Um, and so my thesis was uh, kind of along that axis of controllability um, versus uh, sustainability of, of that quantum information. And the path that my thesis took uh, is kind of interesting. We actually spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to isolate this, this information uh, in the solid state system uh, more and more. And so our, uh, our solution uh, to, the, to the memory problem was actually to decouple that information uh, more and more from the environment. It makes the controllability problem a little bit harder, um, but if you're just trying to make a memory, it's actually a pretty interesting approach. Um, and so, yeah, we, we did that work a while ago. It's actually now... Uh, the foundation to a lot of the work that's still ongoing at Yale, so that's pretty exciting. Um, and uh, it's it's kind of a fun jumping off point to this conversation uh, because that that uh, that axis of, of controllability versus uh, kind of um, optimal uh, coherence is, is kind of a trade-off that, that informs uh, a lot of the decisions that, that we make today, for instance. Um, and uh, it, it's also a good lens to look out uh, over the whole industry and then and, and kind of um, a lot of these different uh, systems ranging from, uh, you know, trapped ions that, that are, uh, you know, almost perfectly coherent, almost immeasurably uh, perfectly uh, coherent, but are really hard to control 
kind of all fall uh, nicely along this axis. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of our listeners and readers that aren't quantum computing experts, and I have no idea what that percentage is of people that really completely understand these differences, um, uh, talk to me about memory in general. I mean, what is what is quantum memory, and what I, I know there aren't a lot of things that it has in common with uh, standard memory as we know it um, from tr- traditional CMOS devices, but how how might a non-expert think about memory for quantum devices? Um, so the thing that's special about quantum information as compared to classical information is that uh, a, a state can uh, remain uh, quantum indeterminate um, for an indefinite amount of, of time uh, until it's kind of acted upon or, or measured by some external system. So if things are uh, kind of perfectly isolated, uh, they can uh, remain in, in this kind of fragile quantum superposition uh, indefinitely. This is um, this is interesting because uh, th- those uh, states, if you will, uh, that can uh, hold information, um, they actually uh, contain um, some really interesting uh, statistical properties. Um, Namely, uh, the you know the number of variables that, that describe these states uh, tends to grow uh, exponential in in the number of degrees of freedom, uh, the number of uh, quantum bits that you have in the memory register. And a lot of these quantum algorithms uh, are taking advantage of interference effects that you can create um, when you have access to this this larger uh, state space. And so the, the whole the whole problem of, of quantum memory is that uh, quantum memory becomes classical memory when it's measured. And so these superpositions uh, are, are kind of um, uh, systems that haven't decided whether they want to be zero or ones yet. And um, whenever uh, things are kind of uh, peeking into the box and, and kind of acquiring information about uh, your memory register, uh, your register um, has to decide whether it wants to be zero or one, essentially. Um, and so over time, these systems uh, decay to some, you know, some potentially random or, or definitely random uh, classical states. Uh, and then they just become uh, <laughs> kind of bad classical memories. <laughs> um. mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that you mentioned here that's, of course, central to all of this working properly and is the subject of an interesting analogy that you came up with um, as it relates to wine glasses, is around the idea of interference, of qubit interference. Talk to us about what that is, why it's important, and walk us through this wine glass analogy, because I think it's a really great way for people that are middle of the road in terms of how they understand this uh, this to work, uh, to even to wrap their heads around it a little better. Thanks, Nicole. I mean, um, one of the things that's, that's kind of fun about um, talking to folks about quantum computing is, is that... Um, it, it turns out that uh, a lot of what's different and, and weird about uh, the gate-based model or some of these other architectures um, isn't actually the quantum aspects of it. <laughs> it's really wrapping your head around a different computational model. So it's kind of fun about the, the wine glass analogy, uh, which I'll get into in a moment, um, is that it explains the, the kind of classical mechanics that's at the heart of how these systems actually operate. Um, and uh, you know, once once you kind of understand uh, the kind of parlor tricks that we're playing 
in, in these kind of classical controls, you can kind of start to reason about how the quantum system might behave. Um, what's, what's really incredible about uh, quantum computers is that like uh, we're all classical people, like our, our electronics are classical, um, the technology is, is roughly uh, borrowed or stole from uh, like traditional MIMO uh, kind of radio frequency like signals for cell phones. Um, and uh, we, we apply these, these classical forces to actuate a system that then kind of uh, somehow interprets it in a really quantum and interesting way. Um, but you can still kind of reason about the, the control problem um, from a solid basis and, and kind of classical uh, control or, or kind of um, a weird kind of classical computing, if you will. Um, it's, it's kind of a fun, fun lens to look through. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll jump into the wine glass analogy because um, it's pretty fun. Um, so basically, uh, um, al along this axis, again, going back to your original question, this axis of um, controllability uh, versus isolation um, is, is kind of at the heart of this. So um, it turns out that in, in, the, uh, in, in the microscopic world or even in uh, some, uh, some of our, our classical world, um, uh, entanglement isn't the hard part, and, th and that's kind of that's kind of uh, kind of weird because uh, entanglement is is the the part that is, is kind of talked about as spooky. Um, but the thing that you know in the lab we're actually working on every day uh, is trying to reduce the amount of entanglement on our ship. <laughs> I know that's kind of uh, backwards, but um, right. the, seems like it. Yeah. Well, so it, it turns out that. Um, like the the classical classical world is just one where there's just like way way too much entanglement to ever undo it, um, and so uh, what I mean by that is um, uh, as as you build, uh, for instance, one of these uh, these chips, um, every uh, square millimeter uh, on this chip is is roughly an opportunity to introduce uh, another defect. Uh, which could um, somehow couple to the the kind of pristine system that we're trying to build. The problem is that uh, we need to build a box uh, that we can reach in and control, uh, but nothing else in the environment can. Every knob we add is another opportunity for noise uh, or just kind of um, complexity. And uh, so, you know, the, the context for for this particular work is that um, typical schemes for uh, controlling superconducting qubits uh, get harder and harder as you add more qubits to uh, your, your, your integrated circuit. And uh, the reason for that is, is just kind of uh, these complexity arguments. Um, and uh, the, the wine glass analogy, I think, is, is helpful to, to kind of understand that, that complexity. Um, and it requires kind of a, a leap into this uh, somewhat, uh, you know, pretend uh, classical world of, of wine glasses. Um, but yeah, so, so um, the, the control problem, uh, how we actually run algorithms uh, can be thought about uh, in, in terms of uh, this, this wine glass analogy. So uh, the, the basic, well, sorry. Let, let, let's say, for instance, that you... Uh, I, I know that this concept in general, you, the idea is you clink a wine glass 
and you can hear it ringing and obviously there's a frequency to that right um, and so sound waves at that frequency are going to cause the scene glass to vibrate and depending on the shape um, or amount of liquid in the glass you're going to get different results right so how does that connect back to quantum computing and what we've talked about so far yeah that's exactly right so um the good news is with, with these solid state systems, uh, first of all, we can, we can design our own wine glasses, right? So we can, uh, we can set the frequencies at which they, they resonate. Uh, and resonance is a really fundamental uh, concept in these systems. Uh, the way that we actually uh, drive these systems is by uh, applying, uh, in this analogy, kind of sound at a given frequency to make the wine glass shake. And that, that's kind of a basic operation. And once the wine glass is shaking, we can kind of call it a one, uh, an excited state. Um, and uh, that information, if, if you imagine a quantum integrated circuit as a table that, that's kind of full of wine glasses, you can think of each of these wine glasses as, as one of our quantum bits. And uh, the problem, of course, is you know, as, you, as you add more and more wine glasses, the opportunity for uh, these glasses to share a resonant frequency or be close uh, in, in frequency, um, th that, that probability increases uh, very quickly. And uh, the reason that matters is essentially if, if they, uh, you know, share a resonant frequency or are quite close uh, in, in resonance, uh, you can actually uh, transfer energy from one wine glass to another, um, and it's kind of hard to localize uh, that excitation or that, that information. Um, and actually, the way we actuate, uh, or, or the way that um, uh, two qubit gates historically have been done uh, in superconducting qubits is, is roughly two approaches. Um, there's the, uh, the kind of obvious uh, um, uh, solution if you're, if you're a bartender, uh, <laughs> which is uh, controlling the, the volume in, in a given wine glass. So you know that the resonance of a, of, a, of, a, of a wine glass, the sound it makes depends on the volume of, of liquid in the glass. And so if you clink it when it's empty, it makes a different sound than when it's full. Um, and so, you know, a clever bartender could, uh, for instance, fill up a very precise amount of liquid in a neighboring glass such that they achieve um, the same resonance frequency. Uh, and then they'll, they'll kind of uh, exchange that, that uh, that clink or, the, or that sound, um, and that's that's a pretty. Uh, it's been a very successful uh, approach to this control problem in superconducting qubits. Uh, the challenge, of course, is if you have uh, lots and lots of wine glasses on the table, as you pour that liquid, you start to transfer uh, that vibration across all of the different glasses that kind of um, uh, could potentially have uh, frequencies. Uh, at each of those like different uh, pouring levels, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and that's kind of a, a key challenge uh, that a lot of folks in superconducting qubits are working on. Um, this is uh, something, for instance, that is uh, inherent to the Google architecture. Um, there's a few more uh, kind of ways that people do superconducting qubits, uh, two qubit gates, that um, <laughs> you could imagine trying to describe with wine glasses. That one's probably the easiest. Um, mm -hmm. Our approach, yeah, our approach is, um, uh, I think, uh, you know, a pretty clever parlor trick, uh, where instead of uh, actually uh, pouring the exact amount you want, uh, it turns out that you can uh, 
uh, kind of fill and then uh, drain the glass um, in a really kind of cute way where uh, if your uh, two wine glasses of interest have different frequencies, uh, say middle A, uh, which is kind of 420 hertz, or detune from middle A by uh, you know, a few tens of, of hertz, um, it, it turns out that if you uh, empty and fill uh, one wine glass at the difference frequency, so in this case, uh, you know, filling it and emptying it uh, 10 times per second, say at 10 hertz, um, you create a beat note uh, which will be resonant uh, at the frequency of, of the uh, wine glass that you want to interact. And it, it won't be resonant uh, with any of the other wine glasses on the table. So it's a way of, of kind of uh, exchanging information uh, through kind of frequency modulation, which is uh, parametric techniques. Mm -hmm. this, this definitely helps people, I think, understand uh, not only how this works, but also the, the immense complexity of what you do. I mean, um, even though it's it's breaking down and making it more simple, you see how specific all the tuning has to be to make to make everything work properly, right? So that's just kind of an interesting uh, element here. Yeah, we go through a lot of wine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'm I'm ready to do that myself after <laughs> this. I, I'm like uh, when you first started talking about it, I saw red uh, wine. Now I'm seeing white, so I, I, I think I'm kind of there with you, Matt. But uh, can can any of these same concepts be applied to non-gate model uh, forms of quantum computing, or is this really just specific to how Rigetti uh, and and of course IBM has somewhat similar approach? Um. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, the the control problem in in general is uh, uh, a very generic uh, problem in, in quantum information. You can think about this this axis of um, open versus closed systems, which is roughly this, uh, how strongly things interact versus how isolated they are. Um, they lend themselves to very different uh, frameworks to think about control, to think about gates. Um, our, our specific techniques are uh, very much targeted towards these universal approaches to quantum computing, uh, which we're really excited about uh, since they kind of, uh, we kind of know how to build uh, efficient uh, for instance, like hybrid quantum classical algorithms, uh, they can solve some, some pretty interesting problems in the near term um, and are just a, a bit more generic uh, than, than some of these other uh, approaches. Mm -hmm. uh, just generally speaking, too, you have one of the most interesting jobs in computing, I think, um, working in quantum R&D on the hardware side. What's next for you guys, even if it doesn't relate to, to this analogy that we talked about today? What problem is on your desk and front and center for 2018? Yeah, so uh, the performance of, of quantum computers uh, is definitely on, uh, is front and center, I think, not only for Rigetti, um, but pretty much across the board. Um, I think uh, we have enough performance to actually uh, run some, some pretty surprising uh, surprisingly large algorithms. Um, back in December, uh, we ran a 19-qubit algorithm uh, targeting uh, some some data science or machine learning applications, uh, which you know <laughs> I almost fell out of my chair at, at the results uh, from from that work. Um, but I think uh, the uh, it, the the real challenge ahead is is uh, improving. The, uh, improving the 
operations uh, that, that we can run, improving the algorithmic fidelities, uh, so to speak, how, uh, how faithfully we can implement a given algorithm. Um, that's at least for, from my seat, uh, you know, what I'm working on. There's uh, one of the fun things about being at Rigetti is it's, uh, it's really a full stack company. And so uh, there's, there's people here whose backgrounds are, are actually in uh, quantum chemistry and then they're, they're spending a lot of time uh, thinking about how to use our compiler uh, to actually inform uh, quantum chemistry or machine learning uh, applications. And th there's a ton of interesting, uh, both fundamental research and also hard engineering problems to solve along the way. Um, my specific team is, is very much uh, focused right now on, on making better uh, quantum integrated circuits. And that's, uh, that's a problem both for uh, the kind of uh, control problem like we're talking about here with these wine glasses. There's also just a lot of nitty gritty material science <laughs> that kind of goes into this <laughs> and trying right. to understand um, uh, what exactly uh, our uh, Fab One facility will be putting on silicon. Mm -hmm. by, the, by the way, before we go here in our last couple minutes, you came from Yale where you were really focused on uh, this, this quantum computing problem. But as you look out there in the wider world to hire team members on the hardware side for quantum, you know, what, do you, what do you look for? <laughs> is, it, is it kind of traditional uh, semiconductor engineering folks that, that bring something to bear? Or you know, how do you even go about hiring people yeah. for this? You know, that, that's a great question. Um, you know, I started, we were, we were 10 people, <laughs> you know, now we're, uh, you know, well above 80. Um, and uh, really since the beginning, um, I think Rigetti was, was kind of founded fundamentally with this notion uh, that we could approach the problem of building a quantum computer from a technology first perspective. It's been really, I think, one of the, the real uh, founding principles of Rigetti. That's definitely informed uh, how we go about building teams. Uh, and so it's been really exciting to see, uh, you know, the, the quality of, of the engineering we've been able to build here. Uh, I would really say that we're, we're definitely an engineering first um, company at this point. Like we, we have some phenomenal engineers that are actually making a lot of the like full stack decisions, uh, both from software to hardware. Um, that like physicists should not be making, <laughs> and uh, so that's that's really great. Um, how we've gone about it is, is um, uh, you know, roughly when we started, the team was uh, still a lot of physicists, not entirely physicists. Um, but as we've kind of uh, grown and as we've matured, um, from a people perspective, it's been about identifying technical problems uh, that can be solved by engineers. Uh, trying to figure out what kind of engineering that even is. Um, and then we actually have to, you know, uh, convince folks that they have something to add to this problem, uh, which has been uh, kind of fun, like actually going through the hard work of translating uh, how what they know could impact uh, what we do here. Um, so we've been pretty successful in, in bringing uh, world's experts um, from uh, kind of uh, top uh, engineering organizations like uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, where they're working on uh, kind of cousin problems <laughs> and uh, may or may not appreciate how their work uh, could impact uh, quantum computing until we really sit them down and say, I've read your thesis, <laughs> here's what you did, and here's how it's relevant. And um, I think they can, they can kind of get it, especially as we uh, try to break down these barriers 
Uh, there's kind of a physicist echo chamber. <laughs> That's roughly what quantum computing has been for 15 years. Well, if all else fails, you can always bust out the wine glasses and talk about <laughs> analogies. <laughs> no. I think Very that's good. It. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Nicole. And once again, that was Matt Rager, a quantum engineer at Rigetti Computing. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back again tomorrow. Take care. Bye.